Our gospel reading today is found in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 22. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Matthew 22, starting in verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the street and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed there was, not, there was a man who was not wearing his wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that um, you will speak to us as you spoke to your people from Sinai, as you spoke through the prophets, spoke through your Son, Jesus the Messiah. So we ask that in these last days, you would indeed speak. And we ask that uh, we would have ears to hear and eyes to see. Father, we pray that at this time we will not become discouraged or despondent, nor will our faith fail us. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I think I'd like to um, just say a few, a few words. That would, it's an exaggeration. In my case, a few words from the passage in Exodus. It's a passage appointed for this Sunday. <clears throat> and it is one that's quite dramatic and certainly one that has spoken to um, believers down through the generations. It's been quite challenging for believers. And uh, I hope and pray that it will speak, uh, speak to us uh, today. I think it um, does highlight 
the character of God, yes, the nature of covenant, um, the nature of prophecy, and also the dangers and, and difficult trying times of, of passivity or despondency, um, fear of not having clear direction. So, of course, I think we all know the story. Moses is on the mountain speaking to the Lord. The people are below. And um, the passage starts off, I think, in a very telling way because in verse, uh, beginning of chapter 32, it says that Moses was a long time coming uh, he is taking a long time on, on the mountain. And of course, God is there discussing uh, the details of the tabernacle, the priesthood, uh, the vestments, and more. And they gathered around Aaron, and they said, um, as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Now, What's the, the difficulty with this? Who brought the people up out of Egypt? <clears throat> God. But the people are confused. People are confused, right? They're, or if they're not confused, they're forgetful. Yes, they have very quickly forgotten what God has done for them. And so Moses isn't around. Yes, there's this lack of security. Again, there's a panic. There's a fear, and uh, the voice of the people begins to speak and begins to put pressure, obviously, on Aaron. And Aaron gives in to the people. He gives them, in part, what they want, because it is a complicated story, and I don't know if Aaron is totally the bad guy in all of this, but he certainly makes a mistake in the beginning. And it leads to a huge disaster, uh, does it not? And it starts off, and this, and this is, I think, a lesson and a warning to us. It starts off with a real human need. Yes, there's panic, there's fear. What's going to happen to us? How are we going to get to the Holy Land? In fact, they're going to make, they're going to make a, a pestle or a statue, which later the text will call an idol. So it will go before us, right? It will guide us and protect us and bring us to uh, our final destination. That's at least what, um, that's what people think. And Aaron, again, goes along with this thinking uh, maybe this is a human need that people have. And, and it is, there is a legitimate human need in all of this. But that's not what the people have in mind. Because after this golden calf is created, um, there begins revelry and dancing. Uh, a party begins. And the party isn't just an, some, an ordinary party, because what the Hebrew hints at, 
quite strongly is that basically there's an orgy going on. Yes, there is an incredible amount of immorality. And when Moses comes down from the mountain, he sees the golden calf, but he also sees the dancing. Yes, and dancing in this case, uh, again, is uh, they're, they're immoral activity. Not that dancing in and of itself may or may not be immoral, okay? But the dancing is, is hinting at something and people perhaps are, um, not perhaps, but they're engaging in uh, sexual immorality and they're doing so, yes, as a part of uh, false worship, you might say, or worship that uh, is not, certainly not prescribed by God. And it's interesting, is it not, the theological confusion Yes, especially connected with idolatry, always, always, always is intertwined with immorality. Immorality, especially sexual immorality and idolatry, they go together like bacon and eggs. That's not kosher, and I said those on purpose. <coughs> like ham and cheese, okay? Like milk... Yeah, don't you, who, I mean, eating a ham and cheese sandwich is certainly a thing to do in some countries, is it not? Yeah. Um, yeah. Goes to get, anyway, I think you get, the, the point is clear. And it's a theme that runs all the way through the scripture. And oftentimes uh, in the mix is violence whether it's at the beginning of Genesis 6 with the flood or continues in Israel's apostasy or all the way through the book of Revelation, right? Theological confusion, theological confusion, yes, leads to um, immorality, which Romans chapter 1 will tell us leads to disaster, Yes, leads to disaster for the human family. And secondly, of course, people misunderstood, as we sometimes misunderstand, what it means to be free from slavery. Yes, the people of Israel are liberated from their Egyptian masters. But it's never a liberation, yes, for license. It's never being free for the sake of being free. Right? Freedom in and of itself is not necessarily positive. It's actually quite neutral. But freedom in order to serve, freedom in order to be committed to the God of Israel, freedom from something in order to be a disciple of Jesus, right, is the purpose of being, it's the purpose of being set free. And you may, I think all of us may recall one of my favorite Bible verses because if we, I've, I've mentioned it before, yes, that the purpose, that God's purpose of liberating the people of Israel from Egypt, according to Exodus 29, 
is so that he may be present amongst them. But God can only be present amongst his people, whether it's the people of Israel or the church, yes, when we live in holiness, right? It's holiness that enables God to be present uh, in our midst. And so there's a horrible misunderstanding of what freedom, freedom means. And ultimately, the story continues um, with um, Moses, of course, uh, Moses, of course, interceding. And then there is the um, there is the um, you might say ceremony that reminds us of a woman caught in the act of adultery. And basically, what what you have is not just unfaithfulness but treason, right, against the God of Israel. Forgetfulness, panic, yes, peer pressure, all of this leads Aaron to compromise, which ends up being, ends up having some very severe consequences. Now, part of this is, you might say, mediated or stopped by Moses. And in the passage that we read, Moses hears God saying, I'm going to wipe these people out. Just, I'm going to start over again. And where have we heard language like that before? With the flood. With the flood. Like, let's go back to the, let's completely go back to the drawing board. And I think what's instructive in all of this for us is the attitude or the, sorry, the approach that Moses takes, uh, especially takes uh, in prayer, because despite the unfaithfulness or even the treason of the, the people themselves, Moses is bold. Moses walks in the footsteps of Abraham instead of the footsteps of Noah. Yes, when Abraham is told that God will destroy a city or bring judgment on Sodom, Abraham starts the bargaining process. When Noah is told that the world is going to be destroyed, at least in the, in the text of the Hebrew Bible, okay, at least in the text of the Hebrew Bible, Noah's passive. He builds an ark, he's going to save himself and his family. Yes, but Abraham has enough chutzpah or enough nerve to start negotiating, yes, starts to pray um, on behalf, or to work, you might say, on behalf, on behalf of the Gentiles. And Moses approaches God, it's not out of, you might say, there's no personal benefit for him in all of this, right? It's for the love of the nation that he's willing to argue with God and to remind God of God's promises. Um, Moses doesn't come up with his own theology or he's not going to argue with God for the sake of personal benefit. 
Yes, but he stands, clear, he stands clearly on the scriptures or clearly on God's uh, previously uh, revealed intention. And in the process, in the process, which is, you know, quite a, um, it, it is quite humorous, the language, because God calls the Israelites, he says to Moses, these are your people. And Moses answers back in the text and saying, no, God, these are your people. These are your people. And let me remind you, yes, of the promises that you made to Abraham, Isaac. He doesn't say Jacob. He says Israel. And God, what about your reputation? What about your international reputation? What about your street credibility? Yes. If you're not going to be faithful... Yes, what kind of God are you? Now, this is a very, again, a very difficult and dramatic passage, but maybe God wanted Moses to say this or expected Moses to say this, to, in a sense, to argue with God, right? To refuse to let God go. And I think what's important in all of this intercession, whether it's in what in whatever age we're living. Yes, it could be 20 years from now or it could be in the troubled times in which we find ourselves today. Is One is the character of God. The character of God is that God is not a robot. That God is relational. God is relational. God can never be forced, but he can't be persuaded. He can't be persuaded. He can be persuaded to change his mind. All right. Now, this sounds uh, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Yeah, you know what the nature is of, of, of God and his son? Is that they will respond to humility, repentance, yes, generosity. Now, anyone who comes to you say, God gave me a blank check and I just have to fill it in and my faith is going to cash that check and whatever I write in the, in the blank, God is going to have to honor that. That's nonsense. God can't be forced or manipulated. But God does respond, yes, to the needs of his people. And God is always holding out. Yeah. Um, always holding out or always wants us, yes, to repent and to, and to return to him. And you can read the prophets. And in one chapter, Jeremiah, in Jeremiah, God will say, I am finished with these people. I've had enough. I can't take it anymore. And two chapters later, you read, if they would only repent. What does that mean? So in all of this, I get many emails about prophecy being fulfilled. Like these things, this violence, right? And these, this horrible uh, events that are, have come upon us, that all of this <clears throat> somehow was prophesied, and it must happen. It must happen, they say. And of course, there's not much we can do about it, but we can sit and watch it happen, uh, and maybe we'll be ready for Jesus when he comes for, for each one of us. But what is the nature of prophecy? Yes, what is the nature of prophecy? Prophecy is always a warning. Right? If you don't do this, this will happen. 
And people who talk about Bible prophecy and end times distort, I believe, the nature of prophecy. Well, they'll say, oh, no, the book of Revelation. Well, again, it's a mystery, and I'm not telling you how it all is going, how it all happens, but many of those things in the book of Revelation happen because people do not repent. Now, what if people repented? What if we took this as a warning that terrible things can come upon this world if we don't turn away from our idolatry or our murders or our immorality, right? And there's, there's a number of texts to prove it. Um, whether it's Revelation 9, I'll read you one from, from Revelation 16. It says, the fourth angel poured out its bowl on the sun, and the sun was given uh, power to scorch the scorch people with fire. They were seared with intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. This is just one of a number of passages, and it's in the spirit of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. So when we talk about prophecy, we need to be careful. And by the way, when we talk about things are inevitable, they just, this is just our fate. You know, the Jews and the Arabs are always going to be at each other's throat. There's always going to be war in the Middle East. You know, there's nothing's going to be calm or shalom until Jesus comes. I'm sorry, but I don't necessarily agree. And one of the reasons that things kind of go on the way they are is because we're indifferent or we're too busy with our own personal lives, our own personal issues to, to care about others, or we're confused, just like those Israelites were at the foot of the mountain, <coughs> and we come up with our own religious system, forgetting the character of God and the nature of, the nature of prophecy itself. And very few of us honestly, are willing to pay the price, especially in intercession. Very few of us love, and let's just use our region and our example, but you could apply this to your home country. Very few of us love Jews and Arabs enough, yes, to be bold and persistent and refuse to give up, yes, in prayer. Very few of us all right. actually really think that prayer works. We're not very confident. Yeah, it works sometimes, it doesn't work other times. And it's true, we don't always know why prayer is not answered. But we're told <clears throat> to, pr to, to, pr uh, to, to pr pray without ceasing. We're told to pray... <clears throat> without ceasing. And just like in the case of Moses, the prayer has to be sacrificial. It has to be sacrificial. It has to cost us something. And it's simply, by the way, it's not just prayer. God may direct us to be actively involved. Yeah. And the prayer, the persistent, bold, 
Yes, intercession of reminding God of his promises and refusing to let go and being open to a spirit to be directed as he instructs to put feet to our prayers, to make them sometimes practical and concrete. All of this has to begin, again, based on, right, God's revealed truth. And the revealed truth is that God has a covenant with the Jewish people. And that covenant that um, we read about today is reflected in Romans chapter 11. And Paul says, God loves the Jewish people for the sake of the patriarchs. And if God loves the Jewish people, so should we. But God loving the Jewish people does not come at the expense of the Palestinians and does not come at the expense of Arabs. Or that God loves the United States doesn't come at some other country's expense. And that the way to pray for this region is to use Isaiah 19 not simply as prophecy that might happen in a future, but it becomes the default or it becomes the way that we pray. And of course, Isaiah 19, the enemies of Israel. Yes, what happens to the enemies of Israel, Egypt and Assyria, both brutal powers, both... Wicked, right? The prayer is that the people of Assyria will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria, yes, and they will worship together. And that day Israel will be third among them with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord, the Almighty, will bless them. Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, Israel, my inheritance. So the story of Moses on the mountain is a story of chutzpah, bold, risky, and sacrificial prayer, persistent prayer, and refusing to give up. You know, Isaiah 25 reminds us that God will judge the wicked and the violent. He does it in his time. And how does all of this fit together with the gospel? It's a very difficult gospel passage because the parable, unfortunately, has been used against the Jewish people. It's been used against Jerusalem. It's been used um, to, to justify, at times, anti-Semitism or persecution of the Jews. What a horrible, horrible you know, way of interpretation and certainly very far from the original intention of Jesus. But I think, what, I think what should concern us in the parable is that the king, who may or may not be God, it's not always the case, the king issues an invitation. And so many, so many are indifferent to that invitation. Now, when a king invites someone to the wedding of his son 
and makes it a really big deal. And people for the lamest, yes, uh, most unjustifiable reasons, don't want to show up. What do we call that? It's called treason. It's called treason, yes? And of course, that treason is, as we read in the parable, it it's, goes punished. It, or, or be, and then of course, others are invited in. And so others respond to the invitation. Others respond to the invitation. And, you know, just so that there's no superiority or there's no pride, whether it's in the context of Jewish-Christian relations, whether it's in the context, well, I belong to this group and that person belongs to some liberal denomination and they don't maybe believe the gospel or I'm not one of those wicked sinners who's woke <clears throat> and reading the New York Times and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, because it can very easily lead to a superiority. Just like with Moses. Well, Moses could easily say, well, I'm not one of them. God, you can get rid of them. You know, it's hopeless. It's useless. You know, start all over again. Don't, and don't, uh, yeah, make me make me famous or rich or whatever it may be. So there's a, an invitation that goes out and someone shows up and they're not properly attired. They're not properly attired. Meaning there are folks who answer the call or answer the invitation, but they're not dressed properly. And what does it mean not to be dressed properly? All through the scripture, yes, um, the idea of either uh, white garments or proper, proper clothing has to do with righteous deeds, with obeying the commandments, right? So it's easy to say, I'm invited. Yes, I have an attitude of superiority. I'm not like them whoever they are, yes, we're good, we're saved, we didn't reject the invitation, so we're not, um, uh, what do you call it, traitors in any kind of way, we're the ones who are faithful. And you know, um, We can easily think we're okay. We can easily think, oh, everything is fine with us. But we can be the ones who are invited, but not chosen. And what does it mean? Many are called, but few are chosen. Who does the choosing in the parable? Does God do the choosing? Or is it the individuals who choose to, whether to decide I'm going to go to the wedding feast or not go to the wedding feast? It's the individuals. All are invited, but not all choose to attend. All who are all are invited are not all choose to attend. 
And what is attending or wearing the, 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 the garments of um, proper retirement at a wedding feast? Um, which, by the way, Revelation 19.8 tells us in the context of the wedding feast of the Lamb, the fine linen, bright and clean, was given to the bride to wear, and fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. The invitation is to come and do God's will, as revealed to us by Jesus. And the invitation in this crisis, the invitation in this crisis, and we dare not refuse it, we dare not betray, we dare not become superior or indifferent or confused, Yes, the invitation is to be salt and light. To be salt and light. To love our enemies, as it says in Matthew 5, because God sends the rain on the just and the, un- the unjust. And that does not mean to compromise or to tolerate evil, which happened a week ago on Saturday. And to allow judgment the Lord to be the one to bring the, to bring the judgment. Because whether it's this parable, or whether it's the parable of the fish and the nets, or the wheat and the tares, God eventually in his time brings judgment to the wicked. Yes, the invitation is for us, again, to pray, to be persistent in prayer, to give God no rest, to remind God of his promises and his scriptures. And again, God, as Jesus said, he does not desire that any should perish. Any should perish, whether they're Jews or Palestinians, Israelis or Palestinians. And that's the way we pray. We do have a special obligation to pray for the Jewish people, that uh, they will live into and fulfill the covenant that they have with God and uh, to remind God um, that um, he has indeed made a covenant with them and um, we are praying that uh, this covenant will continue uh, to be honored. We have a long history of uh, anti-Semitism and um, I think this is a time to practically stand against anti-Semitism, although it does not always mean that we agree or support that everything that the state of Israel does. Okay, so I need to make that qualification. And it in no way means that we demonize uh, the Palestinian people. We do not compromise with evil. And it should be part of our prayers that the Hamas organization, which enslaves the people of Gaza, will indeed be destroyed or indeed collapse with with the loss of as few lives as possible. So my dear friends, let's not decline the invitation. Let's not become despondent or fearful or full of fate and thinking that uh, nothing will change. Uh, But the only option we have is for 
my, my personal safety or my personal well-being. May the Lord save us from that. And may we have confidence, yes, in his plans uh, and in his goodness, uh, not only for our own countries, but especially for this part of the world. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.